You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Listen, we're going to continue on with this uh, theme of the joy of Christmas, and I'm just going to kind of set something up here. We typically read a scripture, and we will. And then after I read the scripture, uh, I usually go verse by verse and break it down. And today's message is going to be different in that I won't be going verse by verse. Uh, When you're talking about Christmas, you have a, a, a theme for a few short weeks and there's not a, I mean, I'm just saying, you're pretty much confined to, Jer, uh, to uh, Mary, Mose, or, uh, <laughs> Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and the wise men. And uh, so I kind of came to this going, okay, I want to take a different, unique approach to this just to try to stay outside, you know, just to keep it fresh for everybody. So I'm just kind of letting you know it's a little bit different in, in what I present. But I trust that it will bless you today. Would everybody stand now for the reading of the word? We will read the Christmas story coming from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let's begin. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that the Word of God and the things that are are taught today would touch our mind, our heart, our spirit. We pray, God, it will adjust the momentum of our lives in the areas that need to be adjusted. I pray the values of our heart will be informed and even challenged and changed where necessary. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and be seated. As I said, today's message is a little bit different than what I typically would be sharing or how I would be sharing, I should say that. And uh, one of the ironic things that you notice from time to time about our culture is the fact that even during the Christmas season, there seems to be a, a uh, re- I call it a Christmas resistance that crops up. And it shows up every year in unique ways and forms. 
Uh, this year, you probably may or may not be aware, a number of cemeteries across our nation have a, have a, a practice of putting a wreath on the, on the headstones, and there's a group now that has filed against that, saying that that's, uh, un- or, you know, it's not ethical, it's not moral, it's, it's against the separation of church and state and all that, and they're fi- just fighting the re- and resisting, just putting a wreath on somebody's gravestone, you know. And I know you think, well, pastor must be fired up and angry. No, 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 we're good. Because this has been a typical thing, and over the years, sometimes these organizations will actually take out billboards, and their attempt is to try to, quote, be informed and communicate, but in sometimes in what they do, they actually show how uninformed they are. So I've grabbed a couple billboards, and I save them over the years. There's one that you'll see, it's all the way back to 2015. It crops up across the United States. They select certain communities. You may or may not have seen some of these. Some of these are more new. Uh, They continue to come out with some things. So let me just kind of share it with you. This one was back in 2015. They said, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. Another one that they put up was, Just skip church. It's all fake news. So you can tell that's one of the more recent ones that they came up with, right? Grabbing a political phraseology and twisting it a little bit. Another one they came up with was make Christmas great again, skip church. Again, you can see how they're borrowing from the climate to try to draw people's attention. Another one they came up with, you know it's a myth. The reason or the season, this season celebrate reason. Implying that somehow the Christmas story and what we believe about what Christmas is associated with is a myth and we just kind of need, they feel like they're informing not only us but other people. Another one they came up with is this, it's a conversation to kind of help young adults know how to get out of a church with their parents. It says, you go into church this Christmas, text, LOL, no way, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. What are your parents say? They'll get over it. It says, atheist Christmas, the more the merrier. And then here's, uh, here's the last one that I have to show you. It says, who needs Christ during Christmas? Nobody. Now, you, you probably, like I said, you have a tendency maybe to see these and you think, who are these people? You know, you can just really get your blood boiling. And I'm just saying, first of all, what's my reaction? Actually, I chuckle a little bit under my breath. And I'll tell you why. It's not mocking. It's because I know how uninformed those statements are. They, they communicate or they, they give you an innuendo like somehow they're informed about something that you're not informed about. And here's the thing. I'm not a follower of Christ because of, of I had to take a leap of faith and jump off of a cliff and hope that what I believe is real. No, I actually know that what I believe is real. And, I, and I'm... And so today is this. I'm actually going to show you we can know and prove that what happened, happened. The question is that it doesn't take faith to believe that it happened. It takes faith, faith to believe that based on Jesus saying who he is and what he did back then, faith is still believing that he can still do it. And so what you're going to find is this. I'm actually not going to be quoting the Bible too much this morning. Please don't let that upset you. Because sometimes in sitting down with people trying to prove who Christ is, they go, yeah, that's because you go to your own self-appointed sources. 
Well, today I would like to say, well, how, would I, how could I show somebody who Christ is and not have to appeal to the Bible? Because if Jesus lived, that information should still be out there outside of the Bible. So again, let's begin to look at this. So here's how these billboards and really American culture as a whole like to deal with the, when they feel uncomfortable about Christ and Christianity. This is how they typically try to handle the context or refute Christianity. They'll use short quips and slogans. Like we all know it's fake news. Well, okay, funny, but it's not evidence. Okay? Short quips and quotes are not evidence. They'll sometimes use, uh, utilize derogatory humor. You know, and you'll see some of this sometimes on late night shows and whatever, and the comedy channel. They take these, and people are like, laugh, they're la they give you the innuendo. Everybody's laughing because they know it's true. No, they're just laughing because they're laughing. It, you can make a joke and none of it's true. But derogatory humor is not evidence. Another thing that they'll often use is the political correctness. You know, somehow we're now informed, we're more enlightened today, we know things today that we didn't know back then, and you're just kind of going, no, it's just political talk, it's just political jargon, you'll be changing that agenda in another 10 or 15 years, and it's, it's, an, ever, it's an ever going cycle, you have no foundation, it's not consistent, and then the other one is this, they'll sometimes just quote faulty history and science. Well, according, they'll say some obscure authority, and because the person has a title, you're just to assume that person must be right. I'll just let you know. By the way, I have a doctorate too. So what I'm about to say is, is truth. Okay, you ready for this? Just because somebody, does, somebody has a doctorate doesn't mean they stop lying. But somehow we go, oh, well, and then if they got two doctorates, oh my gosh, they have a, a higher bar of truth. No, people with double doctorates can still lie too. Okay? A doctorate does not tell you about the person's integrity. It tells you about their education. Okay? That's all. But it reflects nothing about their integrity. It just tells you educationally what the bar and what they accomplished, which, like I said, I'm not anti-education because I are one. <laughs> so they quote fault, fault history and science. You know, they'll take sentences out of paragraphs so that it's removed from the context. They'll, they'll stop a thought or a phrase at a comma and post it, and you think that that one sentence is self-contained, and then you find out the rest of the sentence in the paragraph, and you're going, that was not even remotely what the phrase meant. How many of you just don't like it when people take you out of context yourself? You're like, hey, can you, can you like portray the whole So what we're going to do today is this. We're going to go through something a little bit different as I've said before, but I want to show you according to the scriptures and then a few other things, how we can know that what we believe in this Christmas is the real deal. I don't have fingers crossed. I didn't have to take a blind leap on something. It's the real deal. And here's the thing. It doesn't bother me to have a conversation with somebody who says, you still believe in that junk. My comeback many times, not trying to be smart aleck is, well, if you would do a thorough research, you might come around to believing what I believe too. But obviously you haven't. What do you mean by that? 
And then I'll throw out, I said, have you heard of Peter Stoner? Who's that? I said, see there, you haven't done your homework. How about Josh McDowell? Who's that? See, you haven't done your homework. Okay, what about, what about the mathematical uh, equations that surround this? What mathematical equation? There's no mathematical equation. See, again, you haven't done your homework. You're making these blanket statements, and you haven't even done the thorough research. You are entitled to your opinion, but before you air that, you might want to do the homework. I air my opinion. I did the homework. And I'm just telling you where I settled. You might come up with something different. But I want to encourage you to do the homework so that you know why you hold the position that you do. So that you can say with, without a doubt, I know that what I believe is right. And everybody said amen. So you'll find here in the Bible two things. The apostles always referred to when trying to pr uh, prove who Jesus was. They always appealed to his resurrection. How many know a guy coming back from the dead is a big thing? It's not like there's a whole lot of competition out there telling that story. And then the second thing was, you'll see in the Bible, they repeatedly appealed to the messianic prophecies of the Bible. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Why? Because there were, we, we estimate there are about 360. So, but just, we generally just say over 300. There are over 300 prophecies given about the Messiah. And so for one person to be able to fulfill all that is monumental. And so they weren't afraid to keep putting that out there. So here's, here's how our culture works today. Typically, when we are on the lookout for truth and we want to decide what is true, we go to three things. We like to go to history. We see how often it's quoted, how many testimonials, firsthand accounts can you get. Two, we like to use science. You'll always hear people use the phrase, according to science. And then you'll also hear sometimes people appeal to math. So they'll give, you know, what, how many have ever heard that phrase, what are the odds? Okay, and they'll use that as a description of this is such a, the odds of this just, quote, happening are too monumental. And so we're going to invest, so you're going to, I'm going to take you through a process of history, science, and math. And everybody said, yippee. Wow, it was better than I thought it would be. I thought it would be like, oh man, you got to be kidding me. So trust me, this will really help you to see, as followers of Christ, our faith begins when we start to say, do I still believe he can do it? It's not, listen, the demons still believe in Jesus' existence. So first of all, let's just very briefly, let's go to history. No serious scholar, notice I said serious, I didn't say no scholar, I said serious scholar. Or individual has ventured the claim that Jesus never existed. In ancient times, not even the opponents of Christianity doubted the existence of Christ. The evidence, and listen, this is just leaving the Bible out. Is there evidence out there about Jesus living, breathing, doing what he did, living where he lived, and not have to appeal to the New Testament? The answer is yes. You say, well, why haven't we heard that? Exactly. We live in a culture that says when the information doesn't agree with the PC culture, we bury the information. But I want to point out, even those who do not agree with our faith and who Jesus is, the Islamic faith does not dismiss the, the, the reality of Jesus living. They accept that Jesus lived. They just say he was a prophet. The difference is they'll never say he was the son of God like us. 
But even those who oppose our faith will never say Jesus did not exist. They merely try to redefine who he is. The Mormon faith will not dismiss Jesus. They accept Jesus, that he lived and breathed. But they'll say it is wrong to say that he is the the son of God. He was a son of God. But it is wrong. They'll say, but we cannot accept that he is the Son of God. So they won't even push back on Jesus. They know the evidence for him is so overwhelming. But let me just give you how about we go to the history and see some of those who were not followers of Jesus back in the day when Jesus was living? There's Cornelius of Tacitus. He lived around 52, 50 AD, 54 AD. He was a Roman historian. He eventually became the governor of Asia. In his writings, he acknowledges there's a Jesus and there were his followers. Hey, he, he was anything but a believer in him. He was just acknowledging they're there and they're, they bother us. We don't like them because they won't accept our gods. You also can read about Lucian of Semisata. He is a, today he would just be called a comedian. Back then he was called a satirist, and he spoke scornfully of Christ and his followers. He mocked them because why? Number one, they were real, and they were something that he could utilize in his satire. He never dismissed their existence. He just saw them as a vehicle to use his satire on. Then some of you may know this, Flavius Josephus. He was born around 37 AD. He was a Jewish historian. He uh, was a Pharisee by age 19. He then became the commander of the Jewish forces in Galilee. He went head-to-head with Rome. He got defeated. Rome made him go to work at the Roman headquarters. But he talks about the Christ and these followers and what they believe, and he would not accept who they were. Here's the, again, he never said they're not real. He only said, I don't buy what they're selling. Everybody said amen. So let me tell you this. So, so believing whether, so when they say Jesus is a myth, I'm like, you folks haven't even done your homework. Even the people who would side with you in history say that's a dumb argument. They would say he's, he, he's real. We just disagree on who we think he is and his identity. We'll accept Jesus, but we won't accept Savior. We won't accept God in flesh, and we won't accept that he's God in flesh. We will not accept that. Jesus, real. Walked, breathed. Yeah, there's people who followed him. Yeah, there's people who didn't like him. He's a real guy. He's a real deal. So number two, let's go to this. Everybody say science. Now, I don't have time. Listen, you could have a whole college course on just history. But I'm not going to do that to you. But you come to Matthew chapter 2, and there's an interesting event. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, after they heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So you see that there is this phenomenon in the stars, in astronomy, in the universe. And some people will go, stars don't do that. That is a physical impossibility. There is no way that that can happen. Uh, By the way, 
Let's back it up. I know COVID has screwed up everybody's timeline. How many remember last year around this time, there was a thing in the heavens that showed up and everybody was calling it the Bethlehem Star a year ago? Isn't that ironic? Some planets aligned and there was a, a very, and it, and it was very unique in how it appeared. And you say, I don't remember that. Go back to your Facebook. It's there if you'll find it. Go to your friends. It was posted everywhere, you know, and what it was being called. And it's just like I said, COVID has a way of messing with our timeline. We just think that was like ancient, ancient ago. No, it was just last Christmas that this happened. So I don't have time to totally unpack this aspect, but I can give you enough information. One of the beautiful things that has happened as a result of technology is this, is now they can log the constellation of the stars, they can log in all the rotation of the planets around our sun, the moons and all these kinds of things, they can put it in a computer. And it will tell them about events that will be coming in the future because they can speed it up. And it will tell them about things that are coming in the future so that NASA and all those who are into this can be read. But you know what the beautiful thing of this is? You can also back it up. And you can punch in. What were the constellation of the stars and what were the rotations and the alignments of the planets? Let's say 1000 AD. You can punch that in and we'll tell you. You can say, well, I wonder what it was 2000 years ago. You can punch in when Jesus was born and it will show you what was happening in the stars and the planets based on their rotations. You say, well, what was it? Well, I don't have time to unpack all that for you this morning. So let me give you the resource. There's a great guy who did this. It's called the Star of Bethlehem. It's produced by Stephen. I'm going to try to say it, McVitie, okay? And he puts out a DVD and go online. What's beautiful is this. He also, because of the computer modeling, he can speed it up and take you to the death and resurrection of Christ. Because remember when Christ died, it went dark for three hours? And you want to, okay, how did that happen? Okay? Well, he can speed it up. And take you to that time period and say, here is the rotation. It's magnificent to see how God, listen to me, timed the universe for the arrival and the death and resurrection of a son. Get that. God timed the entire universe to announce his birth and to announce that he had died. You say, oh, tell us more. Well, I'm not selling this, and I don't get a royalty, and he didn't even ask me to put it up. I'm just giving it to you as a resource. You can go and check it out at Bethlehemstar.net, and you can see that and if you're interested. It's about a 65-minute presentation, I'm going to tell you. It, it take, you might have to watch it more than once to stay with it, but it's a great thing to have on your shelf from time to time to remind yourself God has a way of timing the universe for what he wants. Which tells you this, if God can time the whole universe, don't you think he can give some rhythm to your life? I know about you. After I watch that, I go, oh, my life's easy for God to fix. I mean, when you're trying to figure out how to get all this stuff in rotation, and then you, and then you got to bring Jesus in and all that. I'm thinking, oh, this is easy. <laughs> God, you definitely can fix my, you can fix whatever I have going on in my life. This is really easy stuff. I'm not asking you to change the rotation of the planets. My need, real basic. Here we go. It, it, like I said, it increases your faith. Number three is this, the math. And everybody said, yippee, skippy. Notice nobody said that. What, what about math? How many know we use math to sometimes prove 
a case or something that, you'll hear this, what are the odds of that happening? Right? People say, what are the odds? Because they know that what happened was not just, it was just beyond. And there's an interesting thing in the, in the New Testament for us as followers of Christ that we really need to pay attention to. It's how frequently they kept referencing the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Now see, because we're, we have the New Testament, we don't spend as much time in the Old. But let's just say this. Let's just say we didn't have the New Testament. All we had was the Old. We would be paying attention to all these messianic prophecies because we would want to know when the Messiah came and is, is, is a person who is proclaiming that they're the Messiah or not, are they the real deal? We would have this checklist, okay? And so when Jesus arrives, the writers of the New Testament start doing this massive checklist to show us that Jesus is the one, not a, not a possibility, He's, they're saying the one. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we have the genealogy. Why is that? Why did Matthew take such intricate time to list that genealogy? Because there were a number of prophecies in this that said this person has this person is in the line of who the Messiah will come from. This person will be in the line. This person will be. And he's showing by that genealogy that every person that was given a promise that through their heritage the Messiah would come, he lists them. In Matthew 1.22, he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. Matthew chapter 2, 5, and 6. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. In Matthew 2.15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Matthew 2.17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Do you see how constantly they're referring back to the prophecies? Why? Because they say the, the odds of Jesus just simply doing this is impossible. So let me give this to you. Jesus fulfilled 13 prophecies at his birth. It was impossible for any human effort to orchestrate the deliberate fulfillment of these prophecies. Just by being born, 13 prophecies got both fulfilled. I mean, let's look at this. What? Mary, you, do you really think Mary said, hey, you know, the Messiah... Supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I know I'm nine months pregnant. Can you get a donkey? And by the way, Joseph, okay, don't worry about a room reservation. He has to be born in a stable. How many know Mary was probably saying, what, you didn't make a reservation? Have you, have you, did you contact the wise men a few months ago to make sure they're still on the road so that they show up? And, did you give them directions to Bethlehem? Wait a minute, we won't be there. We'll be in Nazareth. Did you give them directions to Nazareth? Um, now, you know they're supposed to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did they get it? Tell them not to leave home without it. One of those prophecies was this. There would be wailing and weeping in Bethlehem because the children would be killed because Herod would be trying to kill the child in its emphases and every child two years and under male would be killed in Bethlehem. Let me ask you this. How does a person deliberately fulfill that prophecy? It would be insane to think that Joseph, Mary, or anybody contacted Herod and said, now to help this out, you're going to have to slaughter all the babies in Bethlehem. You see how outrageous that is? You're either born 
fulfilling the prophecies or you can't make it happen. It's beyond reason. It can't happen. It's impossible. And I said this a little earlier. Over a thousand-year period, there were over 300 prophecies given about who and what the Messiah would look like. And I know I'm going outside the birth right now, but hang on, this will make a great point for you so that you can appreciate who Jesus is. And like I said, you'll go, oh man, I, I it's, it's, not that I believe, it's not that I believe in Jesus. He's the real deal. It's the, the question is, do I believe he can still do what he did? Over 300 prophecies were given about the Messiah. There are, there's no way that accidentally or coincidentally or deliberately that these things could have been fulfilled. So I, I mentioned this earlier. There's a guy named Peter Stoner, 1963, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And I know your immediate thought was, wow, you have to go back that far to find something of this evidence? Why can't you use a more recent discovery or you know, authority? And here's my point. I could have. I want to show you how long this has been out there and how our culture has made sure that stuff like this got buried. What I'm sharing is not new information, it's old information. And most of you with what I'm about to tell you will say, I never heard that. And I will say, I know that. But do you see how long it's been known? And it's suppressed, it's buried, it's ignored, it's mocked. But mockery is not evidence. Mockery is still just what that is, mockery. But it makes no point. So he, he took 10 of the prophecies, over 360 prophecies, he took 10 of the prophecies and created a mathematical model to say, what are the odds that somebody could deliberately do this? So he took the prophecy, born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger like John the Baptist, entered a Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, the silver then was thrown into the house of God's house. The silver then was used to purchase a potter's field. He was silent before his accuser. His hands and feet were pierced, and he was crucified with thieves. These are just 10 of the over 300. And he created a mathematical model to say, what are the chances that somebody could do that on purpose? And he came up with this. The odds of someone fulfilling these 10 prophecies is one in 10th to the, uh, to the 17th power. And I know I'm waiting for the oohs and the ahs to die down right now. It means nothing right now, right? You hear those numbers. I mean, when the Congress is talking trillions of dollars in debt, Okay, there I just went political. You know, numbers just kind of go, they just fly overhead, trillion, you know. So this is what this number, now this is what this number looks like. It's one with 17 zeros. Okay, okay, it's a big number, but still, it doesn't register. So let me put it this way. Peter Stoner, this is his illustration. He said, what if I gave you that amount of, in the, in the currency of silver dollars. I'm going to give you a silver dollar of 1 to the 17th or 10 to the 17th power. I'm going to give you that many silver dollars. How many know? Well, number one, sounds like I'm going to be rich. But you got a problem. Because that amount in silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas Two feet deep. I just want this to sink in. You know how big Texas is, right? 
That number would be the equivalent of covering the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. And to show you the odds of fulfilling just those ten prophecies, that would be marking one silver dollar, and we're going to drive all over Texas, and we're going to bury it somewhere, and then we're going to come back to you, and we're going to blindfold you, and we're going to say, you got one chance to walk out there and pick out that one silver dollar that we just marked. How many know that's just, just not going to happen? I mean, you don't even know whether to go north, south, east, west. You don't know whether to go five, 50, 500 miles, 1,000. Because Texas is huge. And you got to grab that one silver dollar. Now, let me point this out. That's the mathematical equation for 10 prophecies. Remember, Jesus fulfilled over 300. The number is so astronomical, it would be marking an atom. You don't know that? And releasing it into the universe. And we give you a microscope, and we say, go find it. Even if we pointed you in the right direction, you'd still never find it. The mathematical equation used to describe whether Jesus could have done this deliberately or not is so off the charts. Hey, listen to this. Jesus fulfilled 23 prophecies in the last 24 hours of his life, and he, quote, wasn't even in charge. The Romans were. And yet, with Rome in charge, he still fulfilled 23 prophecies in 24 hours. Now, I don't know about you. That's called cutting it close. But you just, you know, you just got to be, you just kind of, I'm sure the angels were saying to God, God, you still got 23 to go. I'm sure God was going, look, I just, I got the whole universe time for my son. We can get the last 23 in the last 24 hours. And he did. So that's why I say this. We come to this going, does it take faith to believe in Jesus? No. It's fact. That'd be like you saying, now, you've got to have faith that that's really Pastor Greg up there. No, you just need to open your eyes. It's very simple. You don't have to have faith that this is me. All you need to do is open your eyes and you'll see me, right? It's right there in front of you. Faith begins with Jesus at this. Do I still believe he can do today what he did back then? It's not, it's not faith to believe that Jesus existed and Jesus breathed, and Jesus did, the, the, the faith starts with, but do I think he can still do those things today? Well, I'll tell you this, when I look at that, I go, if he can do that, absolutely he can still work today. I mean, it's just, if he can, if God can orchestrate the universe for the birth and the death and resurrection of his son, yeah. I'm pretty sure he can handle what's going on in my life. I don't believe God is silent. Everybody said amen. Now, this is the last point. I want to get to the text that we read. There's two things inside of this. It says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive... And give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. You see two names there. 
And the second one has to do with the prophecy. It says, through the prophet. Where did that come from? It's actually Isaiah 7.14. And this is the text from Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What is the backdrop of this? Well, it's about 734 B.C. Ahaz is king of Judah. And he is one horrible person. And I'm going to try to at least let you get an understanding of what I mean by this. 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Kings 16 describes his, his rule, his reign. This guy took his children alive and had them put in the fire as a sacrifice to the god of Moloch. I just want you to pause it. Can you imagine a national leader taking his children and offering his children alive in a, in a sacrifice to a God and then turning around and telling you, and you need to do the same thing. I know what I'd say, you're insane. And I'd probably say you're possessed. Because nobody in their right mind does that. And nobody in their right mind tells other people to do that. But he did. What? So where did this all come from? It goes back to this. King Ahaz was, full, was faced with an attack from King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to prophesy a word of hope. He was basically telling, God's got your back. He didn't believe it. So instead of trusting God, King Ahaz took all the gold and silver from the temple and royal palace to buy protection from the king of Assyria. Let me translate that into our culture. That would be as if a national leader feared a foreign government and the national leader in our nation went around and took all the money and resources from every single church in the United States and turned that money over to a foreign power with the de declaration, I'm buying us protection. How do you think that would settle with the American people? You would also just be going, this is a new level of corruption. This is crazy. This is nuts. How did we get here? It would, it, would, it would be devastating to think that you would have a national leader who would sell you out. That's what happened. These people are devastating. And so after he does win the battle, Ahaz visits the king of Assyria to thank him. During that visit, King Ahaz is so impressed with the altar of the Assyrian god that he sends orders back to the temple to replace the Lord's altar with the Assyrian god's altar. So while he's there thanking them, he says, man, I like that. And not even returning, he sends orders back and says, I want this, I want this to be built in the temple of God. Listen, rip out the altar and put this one in. And the one they put in is where he went back and he offered his child, his children, as a sacrifice. And said to the rest of the Jewish people, follow me. It was a low day. I, they're watching their identity go down. They're watching their economy collapse. They're just like, we're going to disappear off planet Earth. And God said, we would have the Messiah come through us. We're, we're, on the, we're on the borderline of being extinct. And God said this, 
If you think I need a man's cooperation to bring my son into the world, you're kidding. If I can't, if, if there's no man to be qualified to cooperate, he can be born of a virgin. My Messiah is coming. And King Ahaz and nobody else is going to stop it. God's saying, King Ahaz is not more powerful than me. I am more powerful than King Ahaz. My son will come. And you know what? It doesn't, this is how it's going to look. Looks like it's just going to have to be born of a virgin. We can do that. In fact, why don't we just make it a prophecy? It'll be another sign. I love God who can take our screw-ups and go, I can fix that. Or you may have derailed your life, but it will not derail God's plan. So for those hundreds of years, the Jewish people are literally going, so where's God? Looks like the prophecies are, because now we got Rome. And there is no end in sight for them leaving. This is impossible. The Messiah cannot come. And so he says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is huge. Because they were anticipating, because of how bad things were and the devastation that was going on, they thought, when God shows up, I hope, I, I hope I'm the remnant that survives his judgment because he can't be coming back with a smile on his face. He's coming back and it's going to be really, really ugly. And he says Emmanuel, which means this. Do you notice it says with us? It doesn't say over us. Please note that. Do you see that? The Israelites, all, the Jewish people all thought God over us, which is the sword's going to be flying, baby. <laughs> and instead, God said, hey, Jesus, I don't want you over him. I want you with them. I want you to see their pain. I want you to feel their suffering. I want you to, I want you to experience all the hurt that they have in their life. Why? Because his other name is Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. God's assignment to Jesus was, I want you to live among them. I want you to see their pain. I want you to see their suffering. I want you to experience their frustrations. And then I want you to save them from them. That's where the faith comes. Do I believe that he's still Emmanuel and that he's still Jesus? As I wrap this up, here's what I would say to every person in this room. He's not here to be over you. He's here to be with you. Why? He sees your pain, your frustrations, your disappointments, your setbacks, your anger. And Jesus says, my name, Jesus, I can save you from that. I heard a great quote this week. Many times when tragedy strikes our life, people say, you'll get over it. No, you won't get over it, but he'll get you through it. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's everybody stand now as we wrap up the service. Would you, Dave? Would you just lift your hands right now, and I want you to praise him that he's a God 
who's with you, and he's here to save you from it. Come on, let's praise him right now. Come on, lift your voices right now.